Wow, what a great song that is. Wow. But that's a piano player, by the way. Wow. And that's the same water as last night. Amen. Is there another one here somewhere? What? I don't know. I might. This depends on how receptive you are. Uh, anyway, you, you may take that cup. I think it's now fully diseased. Oh, look at that. Well, isn't that cute? That'll last about two gulps in this. <laughs> yeah, I think the cup was better. <laughs> no, no. How many of you were not here last night and are willing to repent? Well, we're talking about God's plan for Israel. If you'd like a, a more extended look at this thing, uh, we have the tape series back there. There's eight CDs over an hour each, and um, great price on them too. But um, it is troubling to me. I guess that's the safest thing I can say. Sometimes I get really ticked. That's Greek for mad. As to why people do not understand God's plan for Israel, I don't get it. Why are 90% of all churches in America, 375,000 of them, why do they believe in replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel in God's prophetic program? I don't get it. Now, I have a brand new book that I wish I would have had here, but it sold out faster than any book we've ever had called Israel Chosen by God. Uh, we're making the plans to reprint it, hope to have it in January. You can get it off of our website, which is davidhocking.org. That is a big website. Don't just sit on the front page, but look at all that's on there. There are thousands of articles. There's a search box when you click on articles. Put in whatever you want to learn. Anything about it, just put it in. And up will come all the articles, and they're free. You can download them. Uh, we also download sermon notes. I have some rather exhaustive notes, put in historical comments and documentations. And uh, those are free. Uh, we know that they're very effective. We're running about 500 downloads of the notes every day. Uh, we also have 2 million people on the website listening to the broadcast. So in addition to where we are on the radio, you can listen 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, or catch a message you might have missed. I just started yesterday the Gospel of Matthew. So uh, if you want to get involved with that, uh, feel free to do so. I also want to mention that on the front page of davidhocking.org, up on the right-hand side, it says HFT Connect. I cannot do this for you. You have to do it yourself. Just put in your email, and you'll get it once a week, not just our monthly newsletter. I warn you ahead of time, because it does make people mad. It's very controversial. Um, I am very pro-Israel. Uh, you cut me, I bleed kosher. You understand? So... Um, I, I'm not making any bones about it. Uh, our website is being um, uh, quoted and put on many, many other sites, which is free. I have no restrictions on anything I do. Uh, nothing is original, but I do have the original document. The Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. But you're free to take those uh, and use them. No, I don't need to be quoted. Just use the material uh, for yourself. Uh, we have direct connections with the Israeli Mossad, which is the best intelligence agency in the world. If it wasn't for them, the CIA would have nothing to do. We also uh, have generals, including the last living general of the War of Liberation. He's 90 years old and is now in Southern California. Uh, he calls Netanyahu probably two or three times a week. And if I don't know about something that's going on, uh, I'll call, and they'll give me the direct stuff. Uh, for instance, uh, we got a lot of articles on the front page right now you can download about Iran. On, is this we're going to bomb it? Is the United States going to bomb? Uh, did the U.S. bomb 
that one facility day before yesterday. If you didn't see it, it was a direct hit and exploded all over the place. But they don't know who did it. I doubt seriously that Israel did. If Israel did it, they would have hit more. Because there's at least four out of the 55 nuclear sites they have in Iran that are filled with materials such as plutonium and others that will make a nuclear weapon an easy job. Israel's estimation is that in four months, um, they are going to have a nuclear weapon capability of at least four nuclear weapons. They go into a Shahab missile, and it goes 6,000 miles with pinpoint accuracy of 12 inches. So you understand, it is very serious. Whenever Saudi Arabia wants Israel to land at their landing fields, you know that something is up. Saudi Arabia is very afraid of Iran's uh, capability in nuclear weapons. They have now told the United States as of yesterday that if we do not stop Iran, then Saudi Arabia will also have nuclear weapons. The Middle East is becoming a dangerous place. And uh, we need to understand that the threat against Israel is a fulfillment of many passages in the Bible. You ever wonder about Psalm 83? Interesting Psalm. The enemies that are adjacent to Israel are all confederate with one another, with one goal, to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. Interestingly, every single one of those have, in the last year, said, we need to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. It's just like the Bible's coming alive. Uh, if you don't know that, I, we have lots of tapes on Israel and what's going on in the world. And uh, try to get knowledgeable of things. Uh, the Middle East laughs at the United States. They believe Americans are the most ignorant in the world of what's going on. When our president says that Muslim Brotherhood is a friend, we're in trouble. They've been in the United States since 1950s. By the way, I checked uh, before I came, and we have about four different terrorist cells from here up to San Francisco operating. Not in quiet, but we know about them. But in the United States laws, we can't do anything unless they violate the law. And then it's usually too late. Uh, our site is the only site on the net Christian or otherwise, that felt the need to expose the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, you can go back and pick up those articles off of our website and print it out for yourself, several pages. Uh, we also have a new leader of the Muslim Brotherhood, who our president said is a moderate and a man of peace. He was lying through his teeth. The fact of the matter is, we're the only website who decided to tell the truth about him. He's an assassin from the word go. I just think we're, um, I don't know about you, I'm tired of the media telling me what to believe. I don't trust them. Uh, the New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, these magazines are trying to control what America thinks about anything. And they are anti-Israel and pro-enemies of Israel. And I think it's time we wake up. Now, many of you asked me about this last night and were disappointed that I just taught the Bible instead of telling you. Okay? So you got it. So don't ask me again. I'm not telling you anymore. But seriously, do check out our website. There are also links. When you click on links, they're all organized for you. Um, people ask me all the time, where do I really get the truth about Islam? There's a great Islamic site written by former Muslims called Understanding Islam. You can click it on on our site. Believe me, it is a treasure. It tells the truth and it makes it easy to read and to understand. But there's a lot of good things like that. Apologetics and uh, Jews, Israel, all of that. Okay, are you ready? Amen. Amen. Turn to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. Now in Romans 9, 10, and 11, 10, of course, deals with the reception of the Gentiles. We're talking about God's plan for Israel. So that's chapter 9 and chapter 11. 
In our opening message, we gave the first argument out of four that deals with God's plan for Israel. What is the point of these arguments? That God is not finished with Israel. His prophetic plan is accelerating at an unbelievable rate at the present time. Unfortunately, a lot of the Christians in North America have our heads in the sand and we don't get it. We don't understand it. People ask me all the time, why do you support Israel? Because God does. I want to be on the side of the Lord. How about you? I think this is getting ridiculous. It's like nobody's reading the Bible anymore. It's the Bible, the whole Bible, and nothing but the Bible. Israel is mentioned 2,566 times. I think we ought to go over every verse today. What do you think? No, we'd miss the Stanford game. That's a problem. Okay. I'm going to take in this session the first 12 verses. Now, what are those four arguments that God's not finished with Israel and God's plan for Israel? Number one, we did last night, genealogy. You say, what are you talking about? I'm talking about the question, who are the children of Israel? The entire church is mixed up on that one. Who are the children of Israel? And the basic point is that just because you're Jewish does not mean that you're in the in-group. That's what is established by that argument. Looking at Isaac and Ishmael and looking at Jacob and Esau. And before the boys were ever born, God made the decision of who he wanted. And Esau is not a part of God's plan. By the way, Esau and every other nation, including all the Middle East countries, can be a part of God's plan. They are not Jewish, they are Gentiles. How does any Gentile become a part of God's plan? How do you know that you're going to be in heaven? How do you know that your sins are forgiven? There is no hope apart from the Messiah himself. And he is Jewish. And the entire Muslim world is telling through our president to American churches that he is Palestinian Arab, not Jewish. They have a massive campaign. Up there in uh, Manitoba... Winnipeg being the capital, uh, we have the central committee of the Mennonite church. There are a lot of wonderful Mennonites, believe me, in Canada who love the Lord and love his word. But these people are rotten to the core. They run the Human Rights Commission in the UN, and they are totally pro-Palestinian and anti-Israel. And they are very upset at my encouragement of the brand new Prime Minister Stephen Harper. Uh, I just spoke to them right before I went to Israel this past month. And I spoke to them in Winnipeg. And the, ang- the anger, the hostility, you wouldn't believe it. And so basically, I thank you for being such sweet, nice people. But I'm telling you, it isn't the same everywhere. There is an anger in the world today. We have to blame somebody for all the troubles we have. They're now blaming Israel. First of all, because the UN last week said the number one economy in the world is Israel. Number one. The shekel is worth more than any other currency. So what do they do? They're now blaming Israel for being, you know, the occupiers deal. Well, now they're blaming Israel. So then they send all their people, their little mercenaries of doom, they send them to Tel Aviv to have a protest only to discover that no Israelis were listening to them. Folks, this is a wicked world. I want to tell you, we're just seeing the beginning of it. People say, oh, it's dying now. I I saw Bill O'Reilly on Fox News. It's dying now. No, it is not dying. Are you kidding me? This is the enemy. Have you noticed the signs among the protesters? Almost half of them are referring to Israel. Israel... They call the main problem to world peace. That's what the UN said in September in their General Assembly. Every day we heard a message about how Israel is the biggest hindrance to world peace. Well, Bill Clinton has his global peace initiative after the UN. That's so he doesn't have to pay transportation costs. And Bill Clinton said 
The biggest obstacle are Bible-believing Christians in America who think Israel is the most important nation on earth. Well, thank you, Bill. But if you go back and read your Bible again, you'll find out you're wrong and God's right. we got a lot of trouble, people. You say, I thought you were going to teach Romans 11. I'm getting there. This is the original document. Follow along, please. The first 12 verses for this session. Romans chapter 11. I say then, hath God cast away his people? God forbid. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God hath not cast away his people which he foreknew. What you not what the scripture saith of Eliyahu, or Elias, or Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets and dig down thine altars, and I am left alone, and they seek my life. It's just the folks at Grace Bible Church of Redwood City that, no, no, no. No, God has a lot of people. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. Even so then, at this present time also, there is a remnant according to the election, that's the word choice, of grace. Our second argument, that God has not canceled His everlasting covenant with Israel, It was built first on genealogy, who are really the children of Israel that will be a part of God's future prophetic plan. And number two, second argument is grace. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord. Grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Wow, does that apply to Jews also? Wow. Verse 6. And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. I'll explain that in just a moment. What then? Remember I told you it's a Jewish book. They keep asking questions. Amen. Here they go again. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded? Well, according as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear, unto this day. And David saith, Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back hallway. I say then, here comes another question. Have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid, absolutely not. But rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world... And the diminishing of them, the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their fullness. Will you join me in a moment of prayer? Father, we ask that you will speak to our hearts as only you can do. The powerful Holy Spirit, author of the Word of God, the controller of men who wrote so that the result was accurate, inspired, infallible, totally trustworthy in every sense. Thank you, Lord, that you've mapped out our future already. Teach us, Lord, to trust you. In the wonderful name of our blessed Lord Yeshua, we pray. Amen. Let's make something very clear right from the start. Grace is the argument here. Argument number two. And put it up there, what grace can do. Next slide. We have the proof of a remnant. Now that proof is laid out for us. Very interesting. Before I look at it, 
I want you to see what is called syntax. S-Y-N-T-A-X. In all languages of the world, syntax is important. But there's only one book that shows us what importance it has. And that is the Bible itself. Syntax is a good word in anybody's language class. What does it refer to? It refers primarily to adverbs and conjunctions. Conjunctions like and, but, for, or adverbs like then, when, so forth. Why is that important? Romans 11.1 1 begins, I say then. It's an adverb used extensively by the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Um, to save time, I'm just going to count them all up. In fact, you guys can see them all. Those are all references to syntax, adverbs and construction of conjunctions in the book of Romans actually ties the whole book together. If you don't see it, you don't read it carefully, I suggest you go through the Bible book of Romans and mark, or at least on a piece of paper, every time you see the word then and when, adverbs and constructions like and and but and for. It's very important. After looking at the rejection of Israel back in chapter 9, and how God has selected a seed from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, after looking at that and then noticing the reception of the Gentiles in chapter 10, the issue is now different. I say then, in the light of God's plan for Israel, we're now talking about their restoration. God is not finished with Israel at all. They are the centerpiece of his program throughout human history, including throughout the church age. We're going to learn in chapter 11 that a partial blindness has hit Israel so that Gentiles can be saved in multiple numbers. Uh, I'm thankful for two things. One, Gentiles can get saved. But number two, that God hasn't wiped out all Jews completely, even during this time. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. So I thank the Lord. Amen? Amen. Any of you that have Jewish blood ought to praise God right now under your breath. Lord, Lord God, I praise you. I mean, let it rip. Amen? It's wonderful. Is there any word that so captures our message like the word grace. It's a wonderful word. Has God cast away His people? No, it's unthinkable. God forbid, He said. What proof do you give? A remnant. Let me show you that. First of all, we have the testimony of Paul. Put it up there. The evidence is clear. We have the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. In verse 12, 1 Timothy 1 verse 12, Paul writes, And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer, a persecutor, and injurious, but I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. That Christ Jesus, Messiah Yeshua, came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first... Jesus Christ might show forth all long suffering for a pattern to them which should afterward believe on him to life everlasting. Now unto the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. He's not done with his letter, but it's time to shout. Amen. Was that a shout? I warned you last night, the Bible has some serious things to say to those who say they believe in the Lord, but are silent when his characteristics are mentioned. 
What do you think about grace? Amen. Okay, you're all right. Just take us a while to wake up. It's early. The proof of a remnant begins with the Apostle Paul. He's an Israelite, and he's a believer in the grace and gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. That's pretty good proof. Number two, I would put the timing of God's decision down from verse 2 back to Romans 11. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now in Romans 8.29 it says, Whom he foreknew, he also predestinated. Wow. Justification, sanctification, glorification. God knew all about it. He has not left Israel out of that program. Here's one, Jeremiah 31. It's the new covenant by which we are all saved. What's the name of the 27 books to the right of your Protestant Bible? What's the name of it? New Testament, right. The word testament is the word covenant. Where did that name come from? It come from the old covenant, Jeremiah 31. God said he would make a new covenant, listen carefully, with the house of Israel and Judah. Doesn't even mention Gentiles. In other words, there's been some faulty thinking among the Gentile Christians about how they came into the glorious blessings of being rightly related to God. There's something wrong. Paul's going to try to correct it. And I'll tell you what it is in a moment. I want you to sit there and worry about it for a little bit. Gentiles got in by the skin of their teeth. This is a Jewish thing from the word go. Did you know that? Oh, well, I think uh, it was a pope in uh, Rome or something, how it all got started. No, 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 no. The church started in Jerusalem. And the first pastor was not Peter. It was Yaakov or Jacob or James, we say in English. He was the first pastor. Well, how do you know? Oh, I thought you would ask. First of all, the original document says so in the book of Acts. But number two, archaeological study shows it. You say, what are you talking about? When you're in Israel, you go visit the tomb of King David. Up above it is called the upper room. It's a reconstruction. Right outside in the courtyard, there's a little grate with a lock on it. And unless you have somebody from the Israeli Archaeological Society, you can't get in there. But if you opened it up, it's a shaft leading right down to first century Jerusalem, and you are in the home. Are you ready? You're in the home of John. Zacharias and Elizabeth. The early church met there. They found pottery there. Pottery that had on it eight pieces of it. That little messianic seal that you've seen with the menorah at the top, the star in the middle, and the fish at the bottom. It's the first known Christian symbol. It's called the messianic seal of the Jerusalem church. All of that was given to the Israeli Archaeological Society, and this is one of the funny stories of archaeology in Israel. They put it in the museum, you know, Rockefeller money. They put it there, and they said they'll have a full-blown report on it. Well, it's been almost 20 years, and they haven't said anything about it yet. But you see, you can't stop God from wanting to do His work. One of the members of the archaeological team, Mr. Robert Fisher has become a believer in Yeshua. So he was tired that Israel wouldn't say anything, so he wrote a book, The Messianic Seal of the Jerusalem Church. It spread like wildfire. Now, a lot of Jews don't even know what it's all about, but you go to Old Jerusalem or New Jerusalem, and you will find that, why, you'll find it in earrings, ladies. You'll find it in necklaces, your bracelet everywhere, and little stickers you can put on your car, which sits on my truck, and everybody asks me, what is that? I said, you know, it's so dangerous, I don't know if I could tell you. That makes them stay, and they want to know. Amen? Good opportunity. Anyway, God saw to it, and <laughs> it spread all over Israel, and all these guys, these vendors are selling it, and they don't even know what it is. 
I love that. God has not cast away his people. The evidence is there. It's overwhelming. Jeremiah 31, it's a new covenant. Here's what it says. God says the nation of Israel will never cease before me forever. I didn't say that. He did. Jeremiah 31, 35 to 37. Don't let anybody tell you any different. Oh, and look at the truth about Elijah. Let's go to that one. This is great. Uh, Notice three things here. The truth about Elijah. First, his appeal. Verse 2 says he makes intercession to God. Watch this. Against Israel. (laughs) You know, Israel's king, the ten northern tribes, is Ahab, and he hates Elijah. He's trying to kill him, and Elijah's tired of running away from him. So in his appeal, he makes intercession against Israel. Like, I'm the only one, but they're not going to get away with this. God, you know what to do. Just hit them good. Really? And then we notice his attitude in verse 3. And, and let me walk through that with you. First, he enumerates all that they have done. He goes over it as though God doesn't know. Sometimes in our prayer meetings, isn't it a little bit amusing? Someone will pray, say, God, I'm praying for Mrs. Jones. And, you know, she lives down the street about a block or two away. And uh, I don't know if you know this or not. She's had cancer for quite a while. And we would like you to do something about it. Why are you informing God about what he already knows better than you? Amen? Should we pray for her? Sure. Amen. But you don't have to give that lengthy explanation in your prayer life. God already knows. And here's Elijah enumerating all that they have done. They've killed thy prophets. They've digged down thine altars. God, you should see this place. Excuse me. He already does. And secondly, in his attitude, he emphasizes he's the only one left. I am left alone. No, you're not. He even takes it a step further and explains that his own life is in danger. They seek my life. God, are you watching? What's going on here? Well, let's go to verse 4, God's answer. What does God say to him? Uh, Elijah, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You are not the only one. By the way, the reference to Baal is the only usage in the New Testament. Nowhere else. 62 times in the Old Testament. Let's go to another matter. Verse 5. The teaching about this present time. What's going on now? In this whole thing about Israel. God's not cast them away. What's going on now? He answers to give us an argument we may not have thought of. There's a remnant A few Jews who have been elected and chosen by God's grace alone. Wow. You see, grace gives us what we do not deserve. Mercy, thank God, holds back what we really do deserve. I think the explanation is very important. Look at verse 6. People get a little bent out of shape over this verse. So let's read it again and see if we can understand it. In verse 6 it says, If it's by grace, then it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it's no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. What is Paul doing? He's giving us what was common in his day known as the Aristotelian logic. Aristotle said, this is this, and this is this, and the two can't be one and the same. So they're mutually exclusive. And he uses the word works and the word grace. Grace is not works. I wish the Christians in North America would believe that. Oh, they like to quote it. But we really don't practice it. Did you think it was because you were a wonderful Christian that God's going to let you go to heaven? Amen? Did you think that God forgave your sins because you were willing to confess them? Oh, 
You're touching sacred ground. Well, I, I'm on good authority because I have the original document. And I'm here to tell you that grace is not works. Not at all. Can't be. And works are not grace. Can't be. So these are mutually exclusive of one another. Amen? Well, if you're saved by grace, then you aren't saved by anything. Oh, yes, I was. I, I asked Jesus to come into my heart, so it is based on my decision. No, it's not. Why do you think you even did that? The boys, remember chapter 9? God made the decision before they were ever born or ever done any good or evil. He made the decision as to which one he wanted. Wow. Grace, huh? Yeah, 131 times in the New Testament alone. The phrase, the grace of God, 24 times. Grace and works are mutually exclusive. I decided, I'm not going to go over every one of them because i got more to say about this issue. But look at that, those of you in the front row. There are 16 things in the Bible said about God's grace. It came by Jesus Christ. We are saved by it. Hold it. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace are you saved through what? Faith. And that is not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Now how many Christians do you know who believe they're saved by faith? There's one, two, three, four. Are we getting healed or are we getting deeper into a problem? All right, let me tell you what the problem is. I've taught this to pastors and students in my graduate school classes to the point they get really mixed up. Why? Let me tell you why. For by grace are you saved through faith. For by grace are you saved is a paraphrastic clause that has to have a masculine pronoun. Faith is a feminine word. So it is not through faith. Do we have faith that salvation is by grace? Yes. It is a gift of God. People say, faith is a gift of God. Ephesians 2.8. No, it's not. Can't be grammatically. Nice try. But you need to go back to school. It's very important. We are saved by grace. Do we put faith in that salvation by grace? Yes, we do. Is that a gift of God? No, it is not. Then what is the gift of God? Salvation by grace. Are you listening? You know, it's amazing to me how little things go right by us and we don't get it. It is not of works. Faith? No. People say, well, faith is a gift of God, therefore, it's not my faith, it's the one He gives me to believe it. That's a basic view of Calvinism. The problem is, it's not true. I hate to destroy people's wonderful doctrines, but it is not true. Faith is not a gift of God. Faith is what you have. Oh, in case you didn't know, God doesn't need faith. Hello? Do you ever read in the Bible... And the Lord prayed earnestly all night long that he might have faith. No, you don't read that. Why? He doesn't need faith. He already knows how everything's going to turn out. If you knew the future, it was all planned, then you really don't need any faith, do you? You already know. How are we saved? Anyone, let me hear it. By grace, not faith. Now, where does faith come in? Is there a chair somewhere a light chair. Can we pull that one out? Yeah, let's bring that out here. For years, people have struggled with this. Uh, some people believe that faith is the ability to believe something, proving that you are really sincere and so forth. Now, I want to ask you a simple question. Do you believe that that is a chair? Amen? Some of you are playing really intellectual right now and say, well, I'm not sure it is a chair. You might have faked it. Okay. Knock it off. It's a chair. All right. Now, if you believe that this is a chair, does the chair save you because you believe that it is a chair? 
Noah doesn't. When does that happen? When do you have faith in a chair? Oh, I wanted to sit down anyway. Oh, my. Oh, that's so good. Now, I want you to know I have faith in this chair. Even though I've sat in chairs over in Israel that have broken after I sit in them. But I believe this is pretty strong. So my faith is resting in the chair. Now, here's something you may never have heard. The Greek language is the largest language in the history of the world. It's ten times bigger than English or Hebrew. Hebrew is a very small language. But Greek has 32 million words. They also have a lot of antonyms for all their synonyms. Like if you ask me, what does meekness mean? Boy, it's funny to read commentaries how they jump all over the place. What you should have done is gone back to the language and asked, what was the antonym? Because when the Greeks have an antonym of a word, it's the exact opposite. Remember, grace cannot be works and works cannot be grace. Well, this is very, very interesting as it comes to, let's say, meekness. Our Lord was meek. What is the antonym of meekness? And to the surprise, surprise, it's revenge. Now I've got to go back and study the Bible more carefully. Revenge. That's the opposite of meekness. Wow. Does that have any explanation for faith? No, it doesn't. I was just illustrating. Okay? Now, when I sat down in this chair, I let you all know that I really believe in this chair. I now have saving faith in the chair. When I was standing up and I said, do you believe this is a chair? Yeah, I believe. I can see. It's a chair. Is that intellectual agreement to the fact saving faith? No, it is not. You see, the word for faith in Greek is pistis, the noun, and the verb is pistuo. It is very common in Greek, one of the most common words of all. But pistuo, or its noun form pistis, has to have an object or it cannot function in and of itself. Uh Uh-oh. Therefore, the object of our faith is far more serious than the faith that we put in that object. What's the object of our faith? Say it out loud. It's Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not your ability to believe it. That's false doctrine. Oh, I just wish I could believe this. Well, give it up. It's not based on what you can do. Because grace is not works, and works is not grace. Therefore, it has nothing to do with what you do. And your faith must have the object of our Lord Jesus Christ. He did it all. Our faith is in Him. One, in who He is. You must believe that He's the Son of God and the Messiah of Israel, or you can't be saved. And it also deals with faith in His finished work at the cross. You actually believe that all of our iniquity was laid on Him. Nothing missing. All the junky, dumb stuff you and I have done in our life was laid on Him. You either believe it or you don't. You say, well, how do I know? Because the Bible says so. Well, then you could say the object of faith is what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. And you'd be correct. Paul wrote in Romans ten seventeen, Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Amen? Aren't you glad you got that straightened out? And it continues. Do you believe He's coming again? Boy, I really believe it. I'm asking the Lord to come on Rosh Hashanah. Excuse me? He said you don't know the day nor the hour. I've often thought a good day would be the day before Rosh Hashanah when everybody thinks he's coming. And fool us all, come a day early. Or how about this day? Wouldn't it be great to see how many players on California and Stanford really know the Lord? Before the game starts, a rapture happens. I just love these kind of thoughts. 
The Bible says God is the source of all grace. The Bible says that we're not under the law, we're under grace. The Bible says grace can sustain you in the most severe trial of life. God says grace has appeared to all men. God describes His own throne as grace. And it's given to us to help us in time of need. Grace is given to the humble, the Bible says. Grace gives us spiritual gifts. Grace helps us to grow in our faith. Grace is what we were chosen to manifest in our life. Wow. God will show how great is His grace throughout all eternity. We've only begun to understand. So what's our argument? It's grace. I'm sorry about what I'm going to tell you now. Uh, God's people are in great need of good Bible teaching. Do you know that? So many churches are giving fluff, or I call them birdbath because they're so shallow. Uh, folks, we need to wake up. In the Bible, there are four serious reactions to God's grace. Four. One. Well, we all, if we're believers, um, let's go to it. Keep moving. The explanation is important. Praise God. Keep going. Is there anybody back there or was a rapture happening? Okay. <laughs> Four serious reaction to God's grace. Number one, you would all probably pass that if you know the Lord. Rejection of the sacrifice of our Lord. Hebrews 10.29 says it's insulting the grace of of God. Do you realize how many people call themselves Christians are really wrapped up with works? They go to church to hear a sermon tell them how wonderful they are. Are you kidding me? Why in the world would we go to do that? People say, oh, I need to get my act together. Your act? I've been actually preaching and teaching for 53 years. I'm on number 54 now. And yeah, right, I'm still alive. Yeah. But you know what? Actually, that's not true. Because if I were dead, I'd be with the Lord. And that'd be a lot better than staying here teaching you today. Yeah, okay. We, we need to understand something. There is no salvation apart from what Jesus Christ did when he died on the cross. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt, yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Grace, grace, God's grace. Amen. Isn't that wonderful? Lots of wonderful song. Amazing grace. John Newton, a slave driver and owner and trader, one of the most wicked men who ever lived in history. And he wrote after he got saved, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Amen? Amen. If you're trying to act like what you do for the Lord is going to get you into heaven, you're wasting your time. Number two, Refusing to repent is coming short of God's grace. Hebrews twelve fifteen to 17 tells us that's why Esau will be in hell and not in heaven, though he shed a lot of tears. You can emotionally wish things could be better. But if you won't repent, repentance is not feeling sorry for what you've done. There is a Greek word for that. It's not used in the doctrine of repentance. No, repentance, metanoieo, noieo, that's to think with your mind. Meta is a preposition meaning after or the result of what you decided with your mind. In other words, it's a change of mind about sin, about Christ, about the Christian life, etc. But that change of mind leads to a change of conduct. If the change of conduct is not there, the original document says you are not saved. Something's wrong. And number three, resisting God's standards of sexual purity is called in Jude 4 
turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. What is lasciviousness? I was teaching in high school about it. A little kid in the front row raised his hand. He said, I don't know, but it sure sounds bad. Okay. The word is aselgeia. Selge was a city in Pisidian Antioch that Paul knew about. It was a stoic city. They had a curfew at night. You had to be in your home or they'd arrest you. And they had an outward sense of morality. But the word is ah, selge. Ah is a negative. It means no selge. So he's making a play on what people knew in that day. It was a stoic city. So it means no standards of morality. You tell me, is that the characteristic of our culture now? No standards of morality. Do whatever you want and uh, make sure you have your ticket to heaven. You are not fooling God or His grace. Resisting God's standards of sexual purity is turning God's grace into lasciviousness. No standards of morality. You just do whatever you want to do and then ask God to forgive you. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. And number four, very important here. It's returning to the law in order to be declared righteous. That's called frustrating the grace of God in Galatians 2.21 and also called falling from grace in Galatians 5.4. Now I need to talk to you very openly about this. There's a new legalism sweeping not only Gentile churches but the Jewish Messianic assemblies. Uh, my wife and I are members of both. Well, that should be true of all of us, isn't it, if we're really believers? But we also go to the largest Messianic assembly in the United States. We have 700 Jews meeting every Shabbat. They're meeting right now, teaching God's Word. Every now and then we have somebody who comes in with a kippah. I like to see a kippah. When I go to a Jewish synagogue that's not Messianic, I wear one. When I go to the Messianic one, I don't wear one. Why? He says, it sounds like a compromise to me. Well, wake up. We don't know that Jesus and his disciples ever wore a kippah. But according to 1 Corinthians 9, I will be all things to all men that I may somehow win some. So I'll wear it when I go to a Jewish synagogue. You understand me? We need to wake up, folks. We're not doing what we're doing in order to be acceptable to God. We're accepted only through the righteousness of Jesus Christ our Lord. I don't have any other. I don't have anything of my own. Paul even mentions that in the end of chapter 9 here in Romans. Israel went after an external righteousness to make them feel like they're really in the end group. He said, no, you're not. And we got people doing all kinds of stuff. I was in a Jewish Messianic church and they were passing the Torah down the aisle so people could kiss it. What? There's not a verse in the Bible about that. Why would you do that? Well, you know, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a Jew now. No, you either have always been a Jew or you're not a Jew. Well, I, I, I'm doing a lot of things now to prove that I am Jewish. I haven't eaten bacon in quite a while. Well, you know, true Jews always cook the sin out of it. Seriously, they'll get beef bacon or turkey bacon. I was in a Jewish home and they gave me turkey bacon. That is the worst stuff I have ever eaten. Costco or not, it's terrible stuff. Don't eat it. But anyway, my point is, people are doing all this stuff, going for the kosher diet, and they're Gentiles trying to play Jew. I mean, I, I sit there and I say, what is going on here? The kosher diet were only for Jews, not for Gentiles. Because he says it's to sanctify them, means to set them apart by what they eat from all the Gentiles in the world. That's why the Jews eat what Gentiles do, because they don't want you to know that they are Jewish. They're going to assimilate into the general population. <laughs> My oldest grandson, who just got back from China on a mission trip, he's a sophomore at Colorado State University, Last Christmas, he's standing 
the bathroom door was open. He's standing in the mirror and he's looking and looking and looking. I walked in and I said, what are you doing? He said, Papa, am I Jewish? I said, of course you are. He said, well, I thought so. The kids at school said, only Jews have a nose that big. <laughs> hey, look, Jews come from every country of the world. Did you know that there's now 185 countries that have a Jew in Israel living? Well, how many countries are there? Well, I know the sign of Verizon says you can hear Verizon in all 220 countries of the world. I don't know who made that sign, but they didn't look it up because there's only 193 countries, not 220. But at least give them credit. Maybe they're planning to put Verizon on the moon or something. I don't know. (laughs) But look, folks, what do you suppose is going to happen when there's a Jew from every country living in Israel? Oh, did I tell you? That's a prophecy, Ezekiel 36, 24. Then the Messiah is going to come. I would say we're getting close. What do you say? Returning to the law in order to be declared righteous? You are frustrating the grace of God. You are falling from grace, which means you're standing off apart from grace. You're back into the work system again. Back to Romans chapter 11. In verses 7 to 10, we have the prophecy of their rejection. Look at it again, verse 7. What then? Oh, there we are with that again. First, the summary of Paul on this. Just put it up. There it is. Paul's argument, verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election, those who were chosen by God, hath obtained it, and the rest were what? Blinded. Is this a total blindness of the whole nation? No, it is not. Later, before we're through, tomorrow morning, you're going to learn that it's a partial blindness. It's not total. If it was total, I wouldn't be here. Let me try to walk this through very simply, and we're done. One, Israel was blocked from achieving what they wanted. Why? Because they didn't understand grace. Grace gives us what we don't deserve or never ask for. Wow. Number two, a few were blessed because they believed God. Certainly Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and also many others like Joseph and Daniel and Job and many others, and like the Apostle Paul. A few were blessed because they believed it. And number three, many were blinded by the Lord. That's a prophecy from Isaiah 6, verse 10. The rest were blinded who did not believe. So this is a summary of Paul's argument, but look again at verses 8 to 10. He gives you the scriptures that revealed Israel's rejection. It says, according as it is written. Let me give you a hot tip about the Dead Sea Scrolls. Whenever the Dead Sea Scrolls quote actual scripture in their writings, they always put, as it is written. Whenever it is not scripture, that is dropped out. It's an amazing fact about all the Dead Sea Scrolls. As it is written. So the scripture revealed Israel's rejection. Two things he brought to their attention. Hypocrisy was a reason. Isaiah 29 taught that. Secondly, was a rejection of the Messiah himself. And that did it. Well, I want to ask you just one question. What was the purpose then of the so-called riches? Look at verse 11. Remember I said syntax, watch out for the thens. He now sends, I say then. Have they stumbled that they should fall? Is that what God did? It says, God forbid. No, it was not. But rather through their fall, salvation is come unto the Gentiles, for to provoke them to jealousy. Now if the fall of them be the riches of the world, and the diminishing of them the riches of the Gentiles, how much more their 
fullness. Now, just jump, please, to verse 25, which is tomorrow morning. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until what? Fullness of the Gentiles be come in. When does that come? Not till the end of the tribulation period. What's God going to do then? He's going to pour out His Spirit on the house of Israel and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they will look on Him whom they pierce and mourn for Him as one mourns for an only son. In that day a fountain will be opened for cleansing and forgiveness to the whole house of David, inhabitants of Jerusalem. God's not done with Israel. Thirty years ago, there were no Messianic churches or assemblies or congregations in Israel. Today, there's now 110. We couldn't even count a hundred Jews living in Israel who really know the Lord. Today, Mr. Netanyahu himself admits there's over 10,000 Jewish believers in our Lord Yeshua. Oh, the majority? No, not yet. But has God reassembled them into the land so they will be there when He pours out? Yes, He has. Man. The motive behind their rejection, I'll tell you two things. One, it was not, oh, moving it right along. Moving it right along. Back up. The future of the world will be greater in blessing when the day comes that Israel as a nation will be saved. Well, I guess it will. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our Lord and His Messiah, and we shall reign with Him forever and ever. Well, the bride is a church. Well, so is Israel. My dear friends, grace has made it all possible. The Jews don't deserve it. Well, neither do you. I'm tired of hearing that argument. Kids on the college campus always say it. Israel doesn't deserve it. I said, well, who did you have in mind does deserve it? And they always, well, you know, I don't know. That's right, you don't know. It is God's grace that saves anybody. God gives you what you don't deserve. And if you have an inkling in your heart that something's not right, and you want to get it straightened out, you call on the name of the Lord, because that little inkling in your heart is being caused by the work of the Holy Spirit, telling you, you better shape up, you're not quite in the end group. Amen? Amen. I need a break, and there are great cookies over there. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping us again to understand that apart from your grace, Israel would be lost, and so would Gentiles as well. Thank you, Lord. Continue to impress upon us our need to trust you for who you are and what you do. In the blessed name of our Lord Yeshua, we pray. Amen.